Being a Catholic, I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. May the bridges I burn light the way. Okay. Listening to the Cathedral in the Fires Radio Hour. All right, Emil. What? what is New England? Uh, a country. A country? Do you live there or no? no? You don't live in New England? Where do you live? Somebody define New England? Um, it's a state. Well, not, no, 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 no. Scrap that, scrap that. No, no, no. It's not a state. It's not a state. No. New England is a geographical area in the northeastern United States. It consists of Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Do you agree with that? I didn't mean state. Yes. You agree with that? Yeah. <laughs> what he said? Yeah. What's, it, what's in New England? Do you know anything that's in New England? Butts and poop. Oh, <laughs> Is Boston in New England? Yeah. What about Connecticut? Yeah. What about New Hampshire? No. Yes. <laughs> Is California in New England? Yeah. What about Florida? Yeah. No. <laughs> What's your favorite part of New England? What's your favorite part of New England? New Hampshire. How about you? Uh, California. Genius. Do you have a serious answer? Um, I don't know. I like the Washington. See, I come from Boston. I'm going to tell you all about how I love New England. It's my favorite place. You know, I've been all around the world, but I love New England best. I might be prejudiced, but it's true. I love New England best. You could argue New England has always been our home. We were here before it existed, settled along the St. Lawrence before America was even a dream. We just followed the rivers and log jobs and mill work south. You could also argue that it's never been our home. We've lived in every state and settled in none. 
My great-grandfather was an anchor baby born in Willimantic, Connecticut. When his father went down to work the thread mills, then the commies got the Irish to strike. His citizenship was of little consequence until his son went down into upstate New York to log. Stopped long enough to court my grandmother where he got drafted into Korea. When he got out, he remembered his father's place of birth and came to Connecticut. Today I live a stone's throw from the thread mills where the French broke the unions. From the rival French and Irish parishes built across the street each other to avoid brawls on the Lord's Day. New England is Connecticut, only east of the river. And the easter you go, the more New England it is. It's the swamps of western Rhode Island where my wife's people came over to work off debts in rocky fields, took British names and Baptist religion, and hoped to one day pass for Yankees. New England is Berlin, New Hampshire, where all the logging roads end and where we stayed for a while before coming to real America, English America, where my great uncles who died doing jobs that no longer exist are buried. New England is field trips to Boston, walking in painted footsteps of men who weren't quite my ancestors and not quite my enemies, with a sort of detached pride. New England is summers in the Green Mountains, eyes wide open as we drove through Brattleboro and the packs of roving hippies, until the city receded and it was just tourists and stern old Yankees glaring, scaling the sheer clay face of the mountain for blueberries and frying trout from the West River. New England is the ocean in Maine, cold and gray and unfeeling, digging mussels from the sand and cooking them over a fire on the beach, drinking all night and crawling into the Basilica in Lewiston in the morning, hungover, picking deer ticks off my children as they kneel in pews under a giant carved wooden station of the cross inscribed La Morte. Some will disagree, but for me New England is also a little bit of upstate New York where my grandfather followed the logging work and met my grandmother where his brother drowned river driving, where my grandmother left her broken family behind and began speaking in broken French like the rest of them. New England is 99-cent gas station coffee and pizza. New England is regional soda that tastes old and out of place. New England is my five-year-old heartbreak in 1986, the Whalers losing in overtime of Game 7 to Claude Lemieux and the Habs, Bill Buckner dropping the ball in the 10th inning and cursing the Sox. New England is believing in the living sainthood of Larry Bird. New England is hitching a ride to Boston to get my ass kicked in clubs with sticky floors by straight-edge gang members. New England is praying by Jack Kerouac's grave in Lowell, weeping outside the luxury apartments that used to be a church where he had a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mother, Honda Civics blaring reggaeton in the streets that were once full of men like my grandfather. New England begins at the pines and ends at the tundra. New England is the first America, the best America, New England is my home. come from Maine and you you come from Rhode Island and little old Rhode Island is famous for you uh, this, uh, this next fella comes from the great state of Maine and is if you're lucky like me you live in a place where night is total 
in the cities and towns, night is subjective. Light from many places bleeding into one another, the true dark night is pushed to the periphery, creeping in here and there, but always obscured. Here where I am, there is only the light from the porch in the heavens. The light dwindles as it expands into the garden, diffuses rapidly, creating weird flower shadows and moving pools, and then it ends. Beyond the field is black, the woods black. You hear more than you see, and all sound is cataclysmic, is crystalline, embedded in the black, a language you do not speak. No matter how safe you feel on the porch, your heart gets clutched by the sound of coyotes on the other side of the river. They sound too close, maybe on your side after all, stitching the edge of the invisible field, the invisible woods, and when you hear them, know that some other animal is having a bad night, for that is what coyotes delight in. It's what makes them so loud. You imagine what it would be like out there with them. You think your inherited superiority might not mean that much. And if there were enough of them, it might not mean anything at all. They speak a language as profound and coherent as your own. Coyotes have regional accents. If you are lucky like me and live in a place where night is total, you are aware of the violent scenes that play out in obscurity. The fawns surrounded by the cruel teeth, the screeching fissure, the unstoppable hands of the raccoon in the hen house, and there are people like that too, marginal people. They have names and can speak a language you understand. You can understand it, but you can't speak it. They cannot speak yours. They are different, other. The thin, square face of Bumper Rhines, who wears grocery store glasses, whose hair was parted in the middle and feathered well into the 90s. The thin face and strong, fat body. His girlfriend was in your class when you knew him. She was 16, he was 25. She wore a shirt sometimes which said, I belong to Bump. He'd be at parties selling bags. He pushes the joint into your fingers with one finger, hardly aware that you were there at all. People call it Jake Manchester, Crackchester, although he didn't smoke crack, just unreliable and mostly drunk. People also called him Jekyll's Finkelstein because they thought he acted like a Jew, I guess. Some people get buried in nicknames. He ran the smelt camps on the Eastern River, and he would drive you onto the ice in the back of his truck. You'd sit on lawn chairs in the back. The frozen river and star-fat night sky are indivisible. Coyotes in the woods. The deep thrum of the tide-troubled ice settling around you. The line of smelt camps on the river are an informal, ephemeral village. Ice melting and slushing around the wood stove in each camp. Everyone getting drunker and drunker. Sweating and freezing. Cards. Deals. Not enough women. A secret world you can't see from the road. Some people called Jake Peggy because he had lost leg in his teens, but I never did. Dennis Sproul, who you call Denai, or the Sprowler, in the feeble way your type does, to take him down a peg with educated irony. But he is Beowulf, he is Stagli, it is indifferent to you. His life is elsewhere, intersects only briefly with yours, usually because you both like drugs. You have that in common. He is the only actual murderer you will ever know. These names, Rhines, Manchester, Sproul, are all old names, but they have been humiliated. The farms are gone. The working boat moldering in the yard, which is a cemetery now of ancient America. They have become marginal names, peripheral names, but once they were royalty. Weed dealer, clam raker, worm digger, fiddlehead finder, oliver taker. Their lives are tied to the tides and seasons. No nine to five, only marginally employed and absolutely undependable. The yokel, the true localist. They cash their checks for digging worms at the convenience store. They might turn to you and say as you stand in line about the lovely and too young cashier, 
I'd do anything to get into that ship pincher, a language you understand but cannot speak. They pushed deer with their huge interconnected families in one place for many generations. The girls hit the wall at 17. The boys are too fat or impossibly skinny, never just right, the frightful teeth. But they're still out there, still making more and free, free in a way you can never be. You could be free like them, you have to choose it. You never will. Secret tales that make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge at Lake Labarge when I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and grows. And why he left his home in that sunny south to roam around the poles, God only knows. He was always cold, though that land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often feign his homely way, he'd sooner live in hell. It was on a Christmas day, and we were mushing our way over that Darson trail. And talking your cold, through a pocket's fold, a stab like a driven nail. And if our eyes we'd close, then our lashes they froze, till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight on our robes beneath the snow, the dogs were fed and the stars o'erhead were dancing heel and toe. And Sam turns to me and Cap says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I ask that you won't refuse my last request. He seemed so low, I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a mourn, 
tis this cursed cold, and it's got right hope till I'm chilled and through the bone. And the northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge at Lake Labarge when I cremated Sam McGee. Next stop, downtown An outside southern perspective on New England and Boston area, I would say there's a similarity in that there is a great sense of pride for their culture, for history. There's a love for America, even though I think maybe a pervasive progressive ideology here has a different view of what America should be as opposed to maybe more conservative Southern ideas. And what else? I think people here are genuinely, you know, not warm or friendly, and it could just be because they're in a cooler climate. I know that, and, and maybe also the people who settled in this area, I don't know how much German is influences here. I know in Pennsylvania there's a lot of German influence, so um, everybody's a little bit colder. I know in southern climates, um, warmer temperatures, warmer warmer climates, people tend to be warmer in general in terms of personality, and a lot of that is attributed to a great deal of time spent outdoors, interacting with other people, that kind of thing. Um, I've heard that. I don't know if it's true. Um, New England is obviously steeped in tradition. Um, the aesthetic is really beautiful. I think that people have a pride of property. They steward things well. Sometimes you don't see that, in, especially like in Southern Appalachia, um, and maybe just even less so in the South. So I think that's something that differentiates them here in New England. Those are my, those are my initial observations. I'm sure I can think of more if I, if I came up with them, but I absolutely love New England. I love the Boston area, and I have said that if I... If I wasn't in the South when the Lord comes back, that I would like to be in Boston. So, those are my thoughts. Next stop, North Quincy. Face coverings are required on MBTA vehicles and in stations. <laughs> Falling leaves, a sycamore. Moonlight in Vermont. All right, so you come from Rhode Island. Rhode Island's a great state. Every state inside USA is a great state. Cop. My first encounter, a salesman had said that he'd heard people from New England weren't nice. And then I would see it online and I kind of set me back because I hadn't considered it. Like what would make people from other areas see us this way? I mean, was it part of the culture itself or the history? Granted, the English are fractious people, punctilious, litigious, and assuredly the ones that had left to settle in the New World were probably more so. Then add the Irish and the Italian, the Gaelic and the garlic. I grew up in that crossroads and the one thing that both cultures share is the feeling that arguing was just communication by other means. 
It's as natural as breathing. They love to argue as much as a beagle loves to bark. It's more than that, though. In the Bible, it says that there are seven pillars of wisdom. Fear of the Lord, instruction, knowledge, understanding, discretion, counsel, and reproof. There's a straight line starting with old pastors and priests that trucked in reproof, rebuke, reproach, and reprimand, all to save the souls of their flock and preserve them for the new world. In this world, however, that instruction devolved to your father, grandfather, and sundry uncles. Sure, your mother thought you were special. She gave birth to you. But your father and other men in the family also saw you with the eyes of this world. And to smarten you up so you could become an adult, they impressed upon you that you weren't that special and that you had work to accomplish. That instruction leads to a simple equation. I admit that I'm not special, but likely neither are you. A Yankee takes it at his sacred duty to help relieve you of pretension and unclear thinking, but for your own betterment. He wants to aid in hewing away the falsehood and assumed haughtiness to arrive at a better you. Being a Catholic, I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. My job is, is to describe heaven just a little bit, just a little bit. But uh, a lot of hoods, hoodlums, and uh, communists jumped on our backs. Throwing Getty jumped, jumped on my back and in terms of the idea that I had that the, the B generation was a, a generation of beatitude, pleasure in life, and tenderness, but they called it in the papers beat mutiny, beat insurrection, words I never used. Into the winding weirs in Franklin Falls, the Winnipesaukees of Nordic Pines, the Trojan grandeur, the Manchesters, the Concords, Plum Islands of Time, the thunderous husher of our sleep. I could hear it rise from the rocks and a groaning whoosh, ululating with the water. The stars are fixed in rooftops like in. Dans le centre Beware of false prophets who come unto you dressed in sheep's clothing and underneath they are ravening wolves. But who's that?
whether you've grown up or live in New England, there's a certain thing people like to say where they feel as though they're lucky or blessed to be able to experience all four seasons throughout the year. And I've come to learn that I think this is more of a coping mechanism because they're actually just looking at life with the glass half full because there's honestly only two seasons in New England worthwhile and that's summer and fall and luckily they come back to back so for the majority of your year it really is the greatest place you can be in the country and as a kid I'll never forget growing up to looking forward to going to Maine every single summer and we would go there for a week uh, to the southern Maine coast specifically we'd stay in Agunquit and I remember we would leave you know, the, the Waterbury area and what is actually just a three to three and a half hour drive felt like we were going across the entire country and my brother would always have a brand new Rand McNally Atlas and I would ask him every 30 minutes where are we where are we and I'd have him show me and you know the states look so big on paper and I'd be like oh my god we have so much further to go and my dad he would sometimes take scenic routes especially once we got into Maine so we could see the water they always seemed to love showing us that we were there we drive through York and Wells and you'd see the lighthouses and the water come right up on the rocks we would stay at this hotel called the Agunquit River Plantation and I remember I just loved being there because right behind the hotel there was a marsh and you and when you looked out it had this ocean spray smell and you could see all these species of birds out there and it was just like you know it was like it was like a wild sort of real estate you felt like you were in another country when you look out on this marsh we would there's a walking path there called the marginal way and it would take you right to this area called perkins cove and it was like something out of a movie you know they make windows desktop backgrounds off this place it's just like this fishing harbor with all these lobster boats and boats you can go out whale watching they had this cool drawbridge that was super old and we'd wait for it to rise up to see the boats go out to go pick up you know the lobster and you that's where you can get the freshest seafood you can ever imagine it, it, it really is just a magical place and uh that's it. That's that's Maine right there. As far back as I can remember, New Hampshire's never had seatbelt laws. I knew this the day I was driving home on the highway from work in my 2001 Impala. No seatbelt to be found. When the guy two cars ahead of me suddenly slammed on his brakes for reasons I never found out, I didn't see it in time. My own brakes failed and I plowed into the back of my co-worker's car. I slammed my head off my steering wheel and somehow ended up curled up in a ball underneath it. We agreed to take care of it the next day at work and I drove my soon-to-be totaled car home, hoping I wouldn't get stopped along the way. Somehow I made it, a bit dazed, but alive. I hate my new car. It always beeps at me when I don't wear my seatbelt.
about the long and short that the Boosters Club is fucking useless. Um, basically, if no one contacts me, my whole game plan was to just show up at the fucking parade, whether they like it or not. The Hartford Whalers Booster Club? As you saw on their sign right there, rest in peace, Gordy Howell, of course, yes. With Erica, the Whaler guys, Peter Hindle and Jerry Irwin, it's happening, the Brass Bonanza. Yeah. Fire it up, right? Yeah. Great, go down to DMV and get your Whaler plates. We're pushing it. Hartford Whaler license plates, get them. They're hot. It was a full house for the Whalers every time, every home game. Didn't matter, you know what? Everybody liked to come out and have a great time. That's what it was. I mean, I was in the last Whalers game. Me and my pops stood out in the lobby. He had to, I couldn't understand him well when I was a kid. I remember his accent was so yeah, bad. Yeah, so you, have so you accent. Oh, you should have said him when I met him. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't understand him. He would get mad because he wouldn't understand what he was saying and thought we were being smart, you know? And it's like, he didn't understand that it was his accent. Plus he had the, his, his English had also had the New, ha the New Hampshire accent. Yeah, right. So instead of there's dare and all. Yeah, so, right. so it was like he had two things going on at once. <laughs> I remember this one time we had stopped to get gas on the way to the cabin, and this couple stopped to ask for directions, and they like thought they were, they thought he was yelling at them. They're getting all nervous, being like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry." I'm, I'm watching. I'm like, "Why are you saying sorry? He's just trying to give you directions." Like that was crazy. They thought they thought he was yelling at them. Now, I I remember him speaking French on it to himself, and I remember him with his with his siblings speaking French. He never spoke it in the house or taught you guys. Oh, no, I wish he had. I that, did he do that on was that on purpose? I think it was it was not an on purpose thing, but back then if you were in America and you didn't speak English, people gave you a hard time. So he was worried they, about that. They were made to feel you know inferior if you didn't speak English and I think that's why he Cable two the award-winning community television channel for Fairhaven and the Cushman presents the 18th annual blessing of the new Bedford fishing fleet. From Canada Square down, it was mostly uh, Portuguese and mostly fishermen. We were poor. We didn't know that we were poor or think we were poor because everybody was on the same level. And people had a hard time, but uh, as far as money is concerned. But um, it was... Uh, a very happy time at the same time because people were, uh, the Portuguese are very religious and uh, no matter what happened it was the God's will and uh, it will be better, it will get better and so they had that faith that kept them going. The Holy Ghost ceremony is actually an Azorian feast, it's not a Portuguese feast, we had a... a... King Dennis ruled Portugal, the Queen was Queen Isabel and she was very fond of the poor. She liked to, uh, she took bread and food to the poor when they were hungry. And they had the rainy season one day, uh, one time, and uh, they thought they would, they would have a famine because the rain was ruining the crops. And so she prayed to the Lord to, uh, to stop the rain uh, so that the crops would not be uh, ruined. 
And uh, she offered, she said that if that had happened, if the Lord had favored her with that uh, petition, that she would uh, sell her jewels and feed the poor. And after a few days, the rain stopped. And so uh, when, uh, when all this was settled, she sold her jewels and um, had a big festivity uh, where there was a big uh, a procession and, a, of course, mass and a big religious service. In one year's time, Gloucester hauls 200 million pounds of fish from the sea. Strangers used to ask me, what does it take to put that much fish on the table? And then I'd tell them. Tell them about patient hands that solve a million knots. Tough hands that tackle tough jobs, like racking miles of fishnet to dry in the sun. I tell them about the quick, sure hands that flick meaty fillets from the packing room conveyor belt and tuck them into a million boxes with never a fumble. Then I'd sing out the story of hands that build Gloucester's wooden boats in a shipyard that's been operating here since 1684. Honest oak from the forests of Maine, the skill of proud carpenters who learn their trade from their fathers and who teach it to their sons. Yet there's another kind of strength here. Every year, the Archbishop comes down from Boston to bless our fleet. Gloucestermen know it takes more than sturdy ships and good navigation to keep coming back from the fishing banks, from the graveyard of the Atlantic. The people listen and pray for the men who sail the fleet. Heavenly Father, we ask you, all of us who are gathered here today, to bless us that we might take your gospel and bring it to those around us by loving our neighbor. We ask you in a special way to bless the boats that are to come. Ever mindful of the great gift that you give to us and our fishermen, I, we ask your blessing upon them to provide them with calm seas, good equipment, and bountiful catches. We ask you in a special way to remember all the deceased members of the fishermen community, especially those who have died this past year. We remember the repose of the soul of Ryan Norris, Ricky Rosen, Ron Towers, Bob Toman, all the deceased members of the Marshfield Commercial Fishermen's Association. We pray that they now rest in the goodness of your care in your heavenly kingdom. And we ask you to watch out over all our fishermen to provide them in so many ways. We ask your blessing upon all who are present here and upon the water as well. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Many boats from getting that close. Very oh my Looking goodness gracious. Look at the lobster. Can we get a close up on that, I wonder? Fantastic. <laughs> there must be at least three dozen lobsters. Big ones too, by the way. Oh boy. Seas two out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. One of my favorite vessels coming alongside us now, the uh, Linda and Ilda. Very friendly uh, bunch of people on the Linda Ilda. Lots of them too, with Portuguese flag waving high above it, as is the American flag. So I grew up in central Massachusetts, not, not here on the coast where I live right now. And uh, where I grew up, it was a really lovely, this patchwork of fields and forest and old pasture lands. And there was still a, a handful of old dairy farms that were, they were on high times. They were, they were, you know, they were going out of business and things were not going well for these families that had these, these old dairy farms. And then on the bus ride and the way into school, the bus would 
couldn't stop it. The kids that would tumble out of these old farms, we understood them to be the poor kids. They, they, were, they were in a pissy mood. And you just figured that the families that, that uh, owned those farms, were, they wanted nothing to do with us. But uh, I was a great explorer back then, and uh, exploration exploration was always on the menu. You, 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 it was hard to get lost, uh, I think because of the patchwork nature of the, of the landscape. There was never a, a forest so, so big enough that it could kind of swallow you whole, never to be seen from again. You, you could always kind of grope your way back home from wherever you came from. I remember one time, I came to this uh, a clearing where there was a, there was a farmhouse, and uh, I had to kind of check my instinct to, to beat it on out of there because there was a, a lovely pond, and the pond was formed by an embankment that had kind of stopped the flow of a of a creek that that kind of tumbled through the woods, and. Uh, I was on the edge of the forest looking across the pond and I'm, the embankment kind of curved around and ended up near the uh, dark porch of the, uh, of the farmhouse. It was a the shaded porch and uh, you couldn't really see what was going on in there. You couldn't see if there were any people on the porch. But I saw the pond and I said, you know, I, I know that there are little fingerling trout in the, in the creek because I've seen that before and I know that this creek feeds into this pond and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, there's probably good-sized trout in this pond and I put two and two together and figured that, yeah, they, they created this pond to, to raise trout in it. Makes sense. So my idea was go back home, round up a few friends, fishing rods, come on back to this pond, and uh, we're going to poach some fish. You know, back then I didn't really, I just thought we were going to go fishing. I didn't really have a clear conception of, uh, of poaching, but uh, that's what we were doing. So we gathered up our fishing rods, and I said, hey, come on, I, I found, this, I found this, this nice pond down through the field, over, you know, through the woods, and, and uh, it would probably take us about an hour to get there. Let's, let's go. Let's go fishing. So we get down there, and it wasn't long before we, we hooked like a, a nice trout. And the trout, the trout, we're reeling the trout in. Trout's putting up a nice fight. And from the uh, from the back porch of that farmhouse, like some comic book band of hillbillies, a bunch of like this bunch of like grown men tumble out of that house and they got shotguns and they're 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 hopping into this old beat up black ltd and next thing i know they're driving along the embankment closing the distance between us in about i don't know two minutes and we haven't even landed the the trout yet and they pull up spill out of that car we get the trout out of the water and we just make a beeline into the woods and this trout this poor little fish is just having the ride of its life because we're running through the woods the trout and the fishing rod are getting tangled up in the underbrush we're running like to save our lives 
thinking that, you know, these guys, we don't know, we're thinking these guys are going to start shooting at us and we're just disappearing into the woods. We clamber up out of the woods into, into a field that's kind of familiar and running up the hill, finally make it to one of my buddy's houses where, you know, he has a nice mom and the mom says, oh, look at that. You got a little pretty little child. I'm going to cook it up for you for lunch. And uh, she cooks up this child, and I, I tell you, I never, I never less enjoyed the meal of a of a of a fish than I did that day. I was just so kind of wound up by by the experience of being chased away by by men with shotguns. Growing up, I'll never forget hearing that phrase that high school would be the best four years of my life, and it really was. And I feel like my generation was the last to fully experience high school in the moment as it was to have it be the best four years of one's life. As I've gotten older, I feel as though I have more in common with people 10 to 15 years my senior than I do with my own cousin, who's just 10 years younger than me. I feel like my father and I had similar childhoods and high school experiences growing up. When I talk to my old friends and we tell stories, I feel as though I'm reliving the movie of Dazed and Confused. We had this awesome local music scene in the greater Waterbury area, and we used to, there was a bunch of bands, dozens of small local bands, kids from all the surrounding high schools. I went to Holy Cross, people from Watertown, Naugatuck, the whole valley, Seymour, Oxford. 
and we used to play these local shows at BFWs, American Legions. We had this one place in Watertown called Cafe Napoli right on Main Street. It was owned by this little Italian guy and his wife, and he had this back room, and it was a small square back room. We used to jam-pack that place with like 100 people. Sweat would be pouring from the ceilings, and somehow... Everybody who went to these shows knew the words to our songs and the words to the songs of other bands. And they did this without Spotify or Apple or any of these music platforms. But they showed up and showed out week in, week out just to just to be there, just to hang out. And people used to come to these shows and it was strictly organic, word of mouth. In fact, we used to put flyers up in our school. And this is something where I can relate to my father about, because that's what they did in the 80s. That's what they did in the 70s, hanging up flyers. And then where we, where we, where we felt like we were sometimes local celebrities, on weekends we'd go up to Hartford and we'd be at the Webster. And we'd play at the underground stage the night. Bands like Newfound Glory, the Plain White Tees, Gym Class Heroes would come to town. And there'd be these, be these big crowds. We were 16, 17, living the lives of like people in their late 20s. We felt like rock stars. We'd be down playing a show, uh, a small battle of bands at Toad's Place, and you'd read the names of the bands that have played at Toad's Place over the years. And, you know, as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, when you look at that, there's such a feeling that, I've said it before, that they could make a 30 for 30 about the the do-it-yourself local scene in the, the Naugatuck Valley in the greater Waterbury area because it was so good I felt like it couldn't have been happening anywhere else in the country. I've lived in New England my entire life. In fact, I really have lived in Connecticut specifically my entire life, except there was a few months where I lived in Massachusetts, as regrettably as that is. Um, you know, I say in New England, I like I like it. There's really only two states I don't like. One of those is Massachusetts, obviously, um, and the other one is Vermont. Now, I like a lot of Vermont. I think it's very beautiful. It's kind of like New Hampshire. It's just kind of worse. There's uh, one big thing I don't like about Vermont, and that's the big cities there. Thankfully, there's not a ton. And then there's this one city I always drive through every time I go there. It might just be a different part of Brattleboro. It's very gay. Now, the thing about this street, when I say gay, I mean literally. Uh, there's three Episcopal churches. Well, one might be Lutheran, but there's, there's three Protestant churches, right? On one street. You know, all just down the street from each other. One of which is under construction. The first one you pass by is under construction. And has a lot of scaffolding on it. And this scaffolding has several rainbow flags hanging from it. You know, keep in mind, this is a church. Um, the second one, I'm not sure if it's explicitly gay, but their logo is kind of rainbow-hued. Although, it could be a design thing, but considering they're Episcopals, I'm not too hopeful. 
And the second one, I always found this one ironic, is named St. Michael's Church. The church I go to is also named St. Michael's Church, but that's a Catholic church, so it's a real church. Um, is this one? This one has a rainbow flag. Well, it's like a sign that looks like a flag, so it's like made out of wood. And a Black Lives Matter sign that's like made out of wood and very professionally made. I wouldn't say nice, but well made. And I always thought that was very ironic to put this one Marxist symbol and one literally demonic symbol on a church called St. Michael's. And I almost get a chuckle out of it every time I pass by, but in a bad way. There's a lot of rainbow flags there. There's this one building I always pass by that says Vegan AF on it. A big sign. That one I find pretty humorous. <laughs> I remember one time I, uh, I saw a protest on the street driving by. And, um, and it was these two very ancient boomers, both wearing like N95 masks, of course, outside. Um, and they, one had a big sign that said, you know, war is, uh, is a crime or something like that. And uh, it said, ban nuclear weapons, right? And now I was with my mom, and so I decided I would not roll my window down and yell something at them, as tempting as it was, because, you know, I'm sure that would not make her happy if she had driven me out of state that day to buy fireworks on the 4th of July, so I thought I'd be nice. But anyway, my point is I've never really had a good experience with that place. And then what's in uh, downtown Brattleboro is also, you know, we think these hippies, you know, we call them dirty commies. Of course, they'll deny it. They'll say, oh, I'm a democratic socialist, you know, I don't support authoritarian regimes or something along those lines, right? But anyway, my mom, she loves to go to this gay store called the Brattleboro Co-op, right? You go there. And of course, you walk in, they have a Black Lives Matter sign taped up, and they have hello in like 500 languages. And I think it's funny, they have hello in like Hindi and Arabic and Hebrew. And I see that sign, and I get the, I get the point they're trying to make, right? But, um, you think there's anyone in Vermont that speaks Hindi? <laughs> Last night on the mass pike, thought I was losing you. Last night on the...
is an excerpt from a piece that I wrote in eighth grade in a district school in a mill town after being sent there from the small country town that I grew up in that had a small schoolhouse that only went up to the fifth grade where I graduated with about six people. It's called The Old Timer's Land. As you sit up in the dead tree or on the square rock at the edge of the eastern look of the mountain and wait for the haze to burn off, time seems to stand still. The air becomes lighter and you can see farther. The summer breeze brushes your face and rustles the trees. Most of the land that you see from the look within a four mile radius is what I like to call the old timer's land. You get this feeling when you're at the look, a feeling that you are not alone in a way. Over time, thousands of hikers would be standing or sitting in the exact place you are, looking at the landscape. What they saw in their time was much different than this view, though. The hills and mountains, valleys and meadows, and dried-up riverbeds were all once pasture land. The fields belonged to the old-timers, distinguished by stone walls that stretch for miles and miles. You can still see those walls today. They spiderweb the whole region, separating the once fruitful orchards the fertile fields, and the green grazing land. Yes, this is what I called old-timers. This is where they once lived before the automobile and the television. If you hike the roads used by these residents, you see remnants of their life everywhere. Little trails branch off from the washed-out roads, if you even want to call them roads. They're almost impassable by a jeep or a truck. These trails, if you choose to follow them, are the old-timers' driveways. They lead to cellar holes of farms and farmhouses of the time. The rock line holes have a story to tell if you sit and listen to them. They tell of a time when the countryside was rocky pasture land, when farms once littered these woods, and when livestock grazed the very spot on which you're sitting. They tell of a time when a horse or an ox-drawn plow ripped through the earth to make ready for the spring planting. A time when you owned what you made, and you acquired those building materials from the land that you see. I sit with my grandfather in the shadow of the mountain and listen to the stories of the old-timers. He tells of the real old-timers, the old men that he met when he settled this land in 1959. These were the real Yankees, he would say, the real old-timers. He can tell you a thousand stories about his escapades with these men hunting, fishing, and farming. He says they spoke with a rich New Englander accent, which sounded mostly like a series of grunts and cackles. My grandfather is one of the only men in the area still alive that was in direct contact with the old timers. Because of these men, he knows this area like the back of his hand. You can find his footprint on almost every inch of ground in a five mile radius. Being a boy growing up in the area, I know it almost as well. I've swam in the swimming holes, fished and waded in the brooks, hiked the mountains, explored the woods, ran through the meadows, climbed the cliffs, and seen their rem remains. Everywhere you look, if you know what to look for, you can see the evidence of the old-timers. Every so often I would trip over an iron object in the ground. The metal pieces were once used for axles, hammerheads, shovel blades, plows, and now they scatter the earth. I learned more by reading this land than I ever did by reading a textbook. If this land could talk, it would tell about the hard times, the good times, the times of freedom, the times of pride, and the times of hope. 
the times of the old timers and their land that we now litter and tread upon. I use this land, swimming, fishing, hiking, or just sitting on the mountain at the eastern look, watching the sunrise. I do these things by myself, but I am not alone. No, I have those who have walked the earth before me, those who fished where I fished, swam where I swam, and sat where I sit. The old-timers are always right there next to me, telling me stories of their land and their time. Yes, my, my, in our family, we were indentured slaves, and so we worked for the company. Oh, I'm sorry, what's it called? Was it Ellis Island? Fisher and Locke. Fisher. It could be called. So you Fisher or Ellis Island, one of the two. Fisher. So they, they lived at, on the plantations as indentured servants. That's where my father's side came from. We were indentured servants on Fisher Island, and when my great, great, great grandparents or whatever got married, as a wedding gift, the people that they were indentured to gave them their last name as a gift so that they could get further in life with the last name of Swamp Yankee Rose picks tobacco in June. Fall, she paints for the Union. With luck comes spring, she'll be having babies for me. Swamp Yankee Rose of mine. Oh, say you'll have me for my saints and my beads. We won't tell your father till it's too late. Swamp Yankee Rose calls the eastern woods home. She blooms where nothing else will grow. 
smokes while she sings and boils dinner for me. Swamp Yankee Rose of mine. Oh, say you'll have me with my saints and my beads. We won't tell your father till it's too late. Go until you're mine. I'll be here killing time. Swamp Yankee Rose of mine. Yeah, we've got a two of them in the morning. I guess we better close her up. Thank you for listening to the Cathedral of the Finest Radio Hours, the production of the Swamp Yankee Radio Network. We now conclude all for that day.